This is the menu on Native America Calling. I'm Andy Murphy. Until recently, you'd have a hard time finding a fresh slice of pizza in the Navajo Nation town of Crown Point. But one determined business owner defied the odds and opened up her own pizzeria. The Native American Agriculture Fund is increasing its national profile, delivering the first ever State of Native Ag address. And Mohawk Seed Keeper and Farmer Rowan White wins a big culinary award. That's coming up on our regular feature on Native food and food sovereignty after the news. This is National Native News. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. The Vatican has rejected the Doctrine of Discovery, which was used to legitimize colonization and the seizure of indigenous lands. As Jan Karpinchuk reports, some Native leaders see the move as an important step on the journey toward reconciliation. Native leaders in Canada have long called for such a move, and it may have been their pressure that brought the Vatican to formally repudiate the doctrine. In a statement, the Vatican said the 15th century papal bulls, or decrees, did not adequately reflect the equal dignity and rights of indigenous peoples, and they have never been considered an expression of the Catholic faith. The statement went on to say the documents had been manipulated for political reasons by colonial powers to justify immoral acts against indigenous peoples that were carried out at times without opposition from ecclesiastical authorities. The Vatican also said that it was right to recognize these errors and acknowledge the terrible effects of colonial-era assimilation policies on Indigenous peoples and ask for their forgiveness. The move came just months after the Pope's visit to Canada. Rose LeMay is the CEO of the Indigenous Reconciliation Group. The Pope coming to Canada has, has been a, a major step, I believe, in that openness of the Vatican in order to hear alternative perspectives. And alternative perspectives is what needs to be heard in order to adjust some of the most the monumental mistakes of the past. Some Native leaders say it shows there is hope for the future, that the Church is stepping up and recognizing its wrongs and correcting them. Others say the rejection of the doctrine could also change perceptions of Canadian history and how it is taught in schools. For National Native News, I'm Dan Karpinchuk. National Native organizations in the U.S. on Thursday responded to the Vatican rejecting the Doctrine of Discovery. The National Congress of American Indians, in a statement, commended the move and said it hopes the announcement is the beginning of a full acknowledgement of the history of oppression and a full accounting of the legacies of colonialism by the church and governments worldwide. The National Native American Boarding School Healing Coalition in a statement said, while the decision is the right one, the Vatican statement lacks accountability. The coalition is calling on the Catholic Church to be more transparent, including granting access to Indian boarding school documents, returning land to tribes, and supporting a full investigation into boarding school policies. The coalition is also calling on the church to respect tribal sovereignty and indigenous ways of life. The Confederated Salish and Kootenai Tribes say nearly $2 million in federal funding it recently received will expand services at a newly built medical clinic and pharmacy. Montana Public Radio's Aaron Bolton reports. The CSKT Clinic in Ronan, which will soon offer full primary care and pharmacy services, replaces an old clinic that provided immunization services for children. 
The tribes last week received $1.9 million to pay for an expansion from a federal program that gives companies tax credits in exchange for donations that will be invested in low-income communities. CSKT Member Services Director Patricia Hibbler says the money will allow the clinic to offer drive through services for the pharmacy and build a physical therapy and community fitness space, programs previously cut from the plans. So we're excited about this project because it means we get to expand into some of those areas that we had actually taken off of the plan due to cost of construction. Hibbler says the construction on that expansion is expected to begin shortly after the main clinic and pharmacy open and will be complete in early 2024. The main clinic is expected to open in May. For National Native News, I'm Aaron Bolton. And I'm Antonia Gonzalez. National Native News is produced by Kiwanak Broadcast Corporation with funding by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Support by Vision Maker Media, envisioning a world changed and healed by understanding Native stories and the public conversations they generate. 45 plus years of Native stories and Indigenous knowledge through film and media can be found at visionmakermedia.org. The Indian Arts and Crafts Board promotes Indian artists of federally recognized tribes through its online source directory. Information on this no-charge opportunity available at doi.gov IACB, who support this program. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network. This is The Menu on Native America Calling, our special variety show focused on Native food and food sovereignty. I'm Andy Murphy, producer and resident foodie. Until recently, if you wanted to go out for a slice of pizza in my hometown of Crown Point, New Mexico, you were out of luck. It's a small town on the Navajo Nation, and the economies, economics and the regulatory situation there makes starting a restaurant extremely difficult. But a new business is making a go of it, and we'll hear how they did it coming up. And a dedicated grower and seed keeper just won recognition from the nation's premier food foundation. We'll hear a little bit more about her and ask her for some guidance on what we need to do to prepare for the upcoming growing season. But first, we want to acknowledge the first State of Native Agriculture Address organized by the Native American Agriculture Fund. The address included remarks from U.S. Department of Agriculture Secretary Tom Vilsack, Minnesota Senator Tina Smith, and Zach Ducheneau, who we have with us today. They mentioned how the pandemic had an impact on tribal agriculture and the opportunities created from relief funding and past le legal settlements. <clears throat> you can join our conversation. Are there any new food sovereignty initiatives taking place in your native community? If you have a farming or gardening question, you're also welcome to join us as well. We're at 1-800-996-2848. That's also 1-800-99-NATIVE. 
Joining us now from Washington, D.C. is Zach Ducheneau. He is the USDA Farm Service Agency Administrator, and he's Cheyenne River Sioux. Welcome to the menu, Zach. Hey, it's good to be here, Andy. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thank you so much for being with us today as well. Uh, so the first ever State of Native Agriculture Address. What is the significance of giving this address this year? You know, that's a really good question, and I think it actually ties into what you let off with about the pizza joint in Crown Point mm. and the way you frame the conversation that it's difficult because of the unique circumstances of that territorial jurisdiction. I think one of the things that this department under Secretary Vilsack and President Biden and Biden's administration are doing is acknowledging the fact that different does not need to equal difficult. And we need to work to meet our Indian producers at where where they're at and move our programs to where they're accommodating those unique circumstances that our Indian producers, our Indian food hubs, our Indian food providers may uh, experience and find a way to adjust what we're doing to fit that circumstance instead of just saying, you know, that's difficult, it's going to be a while. And Secretary Vilsack has been a fantastic champion of pushing us to meet producers where they're at. So I think for the time, the time that we are in to start this state of native ag conversation, I think is critical because it it's a era of inclusion and broadening and acknowledgement of the fact that there was agriculture on this continent in the 1400s before Columbus ever drifted across the ocean and landed on the wrong chunk of ground mm -hmm. and then declared it to be uh, divinely occupied. So one of the things that I've noticed as I go around the country, I get a chance to visit a lot of ag operations in this role. There are a lot of folks that are looking towards those indigenous practices that existed on this continent pre-Columbus time and looking at that as solutions for some of the critical issues facing the day, the supply chain issues that we saw with COVID, the climate change issues that we continue to experience with the increasing number of billion-dollar weather-related disasters so I, I think it's a perfect time to reframe the conversation and start to say, you know, while America's farmers, ranchers, producers, growers are a critical part of this, we may not have to recreate the solutions. We may just need to look backward. Right. Right. And, uh, you know, you mentioned a couple of, uh, you know, some of the big topics that were covered in that state of Na native agriculture address, uh, climate change, um, economics, uh, um, you know, the pandemic and, um, you know, weathering through even uh, inflation. Uh, what other topics uh, were covered by yourself and other speakers in, in this address? Well, uh the, it's always uh, enjoyable to speak in any forum where the secretary is speaking because he's got such a tremendous grasp of how all of the pieces 
of ag and rural economies fit together. But some of the things that, that I covered in my points are talking about the the grant relationship that we have with folks and, and shifting that power dynamic through the leveraging of our ability to do cooperative agreements with stakeholder groups and really looking at meaningful investment in the capacity of those those groups and in our producers as opposed to something that's just a borrowing and lending or a grantee grantor relationship and really seeing it more as a a we're all parts of the same ecosystem right Right. Um, you know, we've focused on uh, how the pandemic is impacting, you know, all areas of Indian country. And uh, definitely we saw uh, how it impacted tribal ag, um, you know, creating uh, a very difficult, uh, you know, streamline for producers to um, you know, get their get their product out. Um, I wanted you. I wanted to ask uh, to expand on that a little bit more. How did the pandemic have an impact on tribal ag? And then, what kind of uh, opportunities did relief funding create for Native ag afterwards? You know, I had the good fortune of being the executive director of the Intertribal Agriculture Council as the pandemic started and went through that first year, and there were some federal assistance programs under the previous administration that aimed to mitigate some of that. One of them was the food box program. They were trying to, the the issue that was supposed to be addressed was the lack of food on grocery store shelves because of the supply chain challenges that were created by the reality of the pandemic at home, for instance, on Cheyenne River, our grocery store there didn't have any meat on its shelves at various times, despite my reservation producing 45 to 50,000 head of Indian-owned cattle a year. So that clearly shows that there is an inherent fragility in the way that our food system is put together. It's susceptible to something like a like a global pandemic at that level. In that food box program, we at the IAC were unable to identify a single producer who was putting food in that box or a single recipient of those boxes. So what we did was reached out to the network that we'd created with our foreign ag service dollars to help producers get ready for the export market and found the funds to purchase food to create our own version of that food box where we would send food or take food to people in need and, and use it to highlight the importance of the work that Indian country is doing as demonstrative of a solution. Local food, you know your farmer, you know where it's coming from, you know the nutritional value, and it's contributing to that local economy. So at the IAC, we had, we had the good fortune of being positioned to build out our own solution. Some of the subsequent assistance programs that came out with regard to the pandemic were markedly improved for the stakeholders in Indian country and in other underserved communities because one of the first things that we were charged with doing in this administration 
is pausing the work in rolling out programs as they were and making sure that we're engaging with all stakeholders, including our underserved communities, our Indian producers, our black communities, our Hispanic and Latino, the Hmong producers, veterans, young farmers, and make sure that we are building these programs to find them where they're at and fill the gaps. And we were able to significantly increase participation in subsequent pandemic programs for those sectors because of the charge that Secretary Vilsack gave us to fill the gaps, make sure we're serving everybody. And I think that leads into the policy that the Secretary is articulating now about how do we ensure that we are preserving and protecting a space in agriculture for that small and mid-sized family farm in the face of growing consolidation. Right. Right. Uh, we're going to go to a break in just a little bit here, but I also wanted to ask you about um, other um, uh, other places where uh, funding and, and those kind of uh, uh, opportunities for uh, tribal agriculture and smaller individual farmers is coming from. Um, I'm sure, you know, money trickled down also from the Inflation Reduction Act and um uh, maybe there's still some leftover from the Keep Seagull, uh, you know, settlement and stuff like that. But we'll, uh, I'll ask you about that just after this break. But uh, to our listeners, if you want to join our conversation today, we're talking about native food and food sovereignty. If you want to tell us about uh, an awesome food initiative happening in your community, you can join us at one 800 Navajo College is officially the first tribal higher education institution to offer a doctorate degree. Navajo Technical University's accredited PhD program offers students a degree in Diné culture and language. We'll talk to NTU administrators about the milestone and what it means for the country's largest Native nation. That's on the next Native America Calling. If you are age 45 years or older, it may be time to talk with a healthcare professional about colorectal colon cancer screening. Medicare, Medicaid, and the Marketplace have you covered. For more information, visit healthcare.gov or call 800-318-2596. A message from the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services. Ajaja. You are listening to The Menu on Native America Calling, our regular feature on Indigenous food news and sovereignty. I'm Andy Murphy, and we're getting an update about the state of Native agriculture. You can join our conversation, too. Are there any new Native food businesses or food sovereignty initiatives going on in your Native community? Give us a call at 1-800-996-2848. That's also 1-800-99-NATIVE. Uh, we have Zach Ducheneau with us. He's the USDA 
Farm Service Agency Administrator, who was a part of the inaugural or the first ever uh, State of Native Agriculture Address. Um, so, uh, Zach, I, we just before the break mentioned, uh, you know, the, a lot of funding opportunities for tribal ag and individual uh, farmers and agriculture businesses. Um, uh, the Inflation Reduction Act, is that something that um, has an impact with uh, f uh, tribal ag? That's having a huge impact right now for, for a lot of Indian producers and a lot of other producers across the country. One of the things that the FSA has been charged with is handling the delivery of assistance to distressed borrowers in our direct and guaranteed loan portfolio. Congress gave us a very specific charge to ensure that we get assistance to folks who have direct or guaranteed FSA loans. And I'm really happy to be part of this because it's a it's a the exact opposite approach to what the United States government took in the 1980s when we lost a, a lot of Indian farmers and ranchers and producers because of federal policy that went the exact opposite direction. So we're working to get those resources deployed and really looking forward to future conversations about how this is setting the stage for a more thoughtful approach to ag financing by the Farm Service Agency that more closely aligns with what a producer needs instead of what a bank or a lender might want. We're really excited to, to see the next phases of this and hope to hear some stories from the countryside about how we've helped producers keep their farms or ranches together. Right, right. Yeah, a lot of opportunities, it seems like. Uh, where can farmers uh, find this information? If farmers go to farmers.gov, most of the information that we have on a daily basis is, is just a few clicks away. Uh, you can also probably Google search Inflation Reduction Act. You know, there's there's a lot of opportunity to to find that information out there. We also have several cooperators out there with whom we've got cooperative agreements who have uh, resources to offer producers to assist with that. Right. All right. Uh, and another thing that uh, was part of the address, you know, I heard it from from everybody who who um, gave an update during that address uh, about the farm bill. Uh, the farm bill is going to be reauthorized this year. Um, what uh, what does this mean for native agriculture, and why should people pay attention to uh, farm bill reauthorization? Well, you know, farm bill is going to lay out what the future of ag policy is in this country for the next five years or so. Every five years, there's a conversation that's fed by conversations with stakeholders and interest groups and members on the Hill. And that is going to shape the way that the United States Department of Agriculture delivers farm policy. It'll, you know, new programs can be created. Old programs can be sunsetted. Uh, funding amounts and funding authorization levels are set. Those are all still driven by annual appropriation or other appropriation vehicles, but the Farm Bill really, really lays out the framework. For the Farm Service Agency in particular, that means offering general guidance on how we carry out the programs that we have to offer. We offer farm loan programs. 
We offer conservation programs. We offer disaster assistance programs, and we offer some safety net and price support programs as well. A couple of the notable changes that we've made in those programs that Indian country should be aware of are putting an emphasis on really meaningfully engaging with tribal nations in conservation practices through our conservation reserve program and conservation reserve enhancements programs within that umbrella of CRP. We've got three agreements with tribal nations in the Great Plains to enroll up to 3 million acres in conservation reserve program contracts that could mean a lot of meaningful income to Indian country, as well as helping their producers access conservation practice programs directly without having to be ranked and scored against their counterparts who may have a, an inside track on some of that. Another com important component that we've been working a lot on in recognition of the fact that a lot of Indian country is livestock country, ensuring that our disaster programs in the livestock segment are catching up with the disaster and safety net programs that exist for our crop growers, uh, including horses in those programs has been a critical thing, ensuring that we are making sure that we're properly identifying the loss when a producer loses livestock so that we can provide assistance to those programs, including buffalo in some of these programs, things that really matter to Indian country. And it's the having the support of Secretary Vilsack in pushing these boundaries and finding the flexibility to deliver for our Indian producers and others has really been the uh, invigorating experience for me. Got it. All right. Well, Zach, uh, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, we'll have a link to the um, state of Indian, uh, state of Native agriculture addressed by the Native American Agriculture Fund uh, on our website. But um, uh, you just heard from Zach Dushino. He's the USDA Farm Service Agency Administrator. Um, thank you again for joining us today. Um, this month, my hometown of Crown Point, New Mexico, celebrated the grand opening of Victoria's Pizza. It's the only Navajo-owned Navajo restaurant in town and the first in a very long time. Victoria Largo, uh, the new brick-and-motor uh, restauranteur, has been making and selling pizza in town from her house and from a small food trailer for nearly 30 years. I interviewed her uh, a couple of years ago for a food business story and learned about some of the barriers she came up against trying to open a brick-and-motor restaurant in Crown Point. Lack of access to capital, land jurisdictions in the town, and lack of business real estate. We, we weren't able to have uh, Victoria Largo on the show at this busy lunchtime hour, but my sister, Alicia Murphy, was able to meet with her for an interview before that grand opening. To be sitting here looking at my establishment now and it becoming a full restaurant dine-in compared to the small trailer, I knew that it was time that we had to step into something like this because there were just so many people, customers coming all from far distance. You know, they travel to Hatchie, they travel from Lake Valley, Pueblo Pintado, 
coming all the way to Crown Point, and you know, I was like, oh my goodness, it's getting too big. And and I know a lot of the customers out there that tried calling in for Victoria's Pizza and couldn't get through. This, I said, okay, this is it. This is telling me that pizza needs to, this needs to become a restaurant. That little trailer, it, it, it couldn't handle Crown Point. It was getting bigger and bigger. So, <laughs> so we had to, we, I had to start thinking about dining. And so that became my target was really thinking about the people and the customers. Cause I think really my joy in my heart is to see a family enjoying pizza all together. That was Victoria Largo talking with my sister Alicia Murphy, who is the economist for the Navajo Nation and the current resident of Crown Point. Uh, you can join our conversation. Is there a restaurant or food business owner in your native community that you're proud of? Give us a call. We're at 1-800-996-2848. That's also 1-800-99-NATIVE. Joining us now from Window Rock, Arizona, is Nick Taylor. He is the CEO of Navajo Nation Shopping Centers Incorporated. He's Navajo. Welcome to the menu, Nick. Hi, Nick. We'll uh, work on getting him on the line here. Oh, are you there? Yes, I'm here. Okay, cool. All right. Well, Nick, you were at the grand opening of Victoria's Pizza. How was it? How, how did you see the community turn out for this event? Unfortunately, I was not able to attend the grand opening event, but I did have a number of my staff who were at the event, and the feedback I received from them that was that it was a great turnout and that we shopping centers, the company itself, um, assisted Ms. Largo in preparing for her grand opening. And everything went well, and everybody was well received by the community from the staff side. And also, it was uh, great to have the staff be a part of those festivities and to sample the pizza. It was great. All right. Uh, so tell me a little bit about Navajo Nation Shopping Centers Incorporated. I mean, this is the, this is where Victoria's Pizza is is housed. Sure. So the Navajo Nation Shopping Centers Incorporated is a corporation owned by the Navajo Nation. So we're often referred to as an enterprise in some circles, in other areas, as a corporation. And our responsibility to the nation is to serve as a property management real estate company where we provide ownership and management of grocery anchored shopping centers across the Navajo Nation. So within the Navajo Nation, there are 13 shopping centers. Um, the, co the corporation I work for, we own and operate nine of those shopping centers. And one of those happens to be the one located in Crown Point, New Mexico. All right. And you mentioned you work with uh, Victoria. What, what does that mean? What did that work look like? Yes. So as a property management company, our responsibility is to provide a physical space for businesses to occupy. And one of the challenge, many challenges with Navajo in opening a business is that a lot of startups and small businesses don't have the capital to build a fully functioning building from the ground up. And so what we do is we actually provide an actual existing building for tenants to lease and rent from us. And with Victoria's Pizza, uh, we first uh, heard of Victoria back in 2015. And at that point in time, she was still operating out of her home, I believe. And we were 
um, introduced to her, she approached us and was looking for a space. And, but unfortunately, during that time, we didn't have any space available since we do have a lot of demand for retail and office space within Navajo. And it wasn't until uh, more recently in 2019 where we actually began to uh, venture with Victoria and assist her in getting a space built out at the Crown Point Shopping Center. Okay. All right. Uh, and tell me what uh, the, the shopping centers look like. It seems like a lot of them have a, a Bash's grocery store connected to it. Yes. So within the commercial real estate realm, uh, we offer and manage grocery anchor shopping centers. So we uh, specialize in neighborhood and community-sized shopping centers where uh, our shopping centers are anchored by run grocery tenant which happens to be at this point in time, um, Bashes, which is now owned by Rayleigh's. Um, some of our centers are also have uh, Lowe's based out of Texas as the anchor tenants. And these anchor tenants serve as the primary attraction to a shopping center. And then there are some ancillary businesses that complement the grocery side to um, retain and keep customers coming back to a particular center. And for the Crown Point Shopping Center, we do have a variety of businesses located there. We do have a uh, the grocery store, of course, and also a few other medical um, tenants and Navajo Nation Department offices that provide social services. And our newest addition is the restaurant component for dining, which is Victoria's Pizza. Got and so it. together, all these businesses comprise a community neighborhood shopping center. Nice. Yeah. Um, you know, looking at uh, Crown Point, if you don't know uh, Crown Point, we have, um, and this is where I come from, this is my hometown, uh, but uh, we have uh, two tribal colleges there. We have, um, you know, it's, it's a pretty, pretty sizable little town. You know, I think the population is somewhere between 3,000 and 4,000, um, you know, with the tribal colleges. Um, you know, it depends on, you know, student attend attendance there. But, uh, you know, looking at other smaller towns off the reservation, I mean, a town that has 3,000, 4,000 people, um, there's a, a handful of restaurants there. And I always looked back at uh, Crown Point and I always, you know, wondered why uh, there, ha there are not any uh, restaurants in Crown Point. And, you know, we just uh, mentioned a couple of those uh, hurdles that um, uh, come up against um, business owners. Uh, you know, first of all, there's like, there's no uh, just, you know, empty, empty business space here and there where people can get in there and start their business. Uh, they literally have to come up with the capital to, you know, build a building, which I, I can imagine is a couple million dollars. And we got those jurisdictional um, uh, barriers as well, especially in the Crown Point area where it's very checkerboard, a uh, very checkerboarded area. Uh, how significant really is this uh, opening of Victoria's Pizza in Crown Point, Nick? Well, given that Shopping Centers has been working on this since 2015 in terms of uh, planning and preparation and then going to fully execution, uh, it's been quite a monumental challenge in getting Victoria's Pizza operational. Uh, we did start in 2019, and of course, from the pandemic really slowed down everything. And then there was the whole uh, events following the pandemic, you know, the change in the economy, the change in the cost of money, you know, inflation, 
uh, cost of materials and labor going up. So all these headwinds that we shopping centers and Miss Largo had to overcome together were uh, very monumental. And we're, we were shooting for an opening date of uh, 2021, but all these events resulted in delay after delay and we're able to finally get that done here in uh, March of 2023. And you know, for us, it was really assisting Miss Largo with the task of getting her accustomed to working and operating in a commercial setting. So originally Ms. Largo was operating out of her home and also a food vending truck. Uh, but when you go into a commercial setting, the uh, business settings are entirely different. And so Ms. Largo had never operated in such an environment before. So my team and I had to really um, guide her on the process of setting up our commercial accounts and being a, reaching out to vendors and setting up that commercial business relationship, the business to business side, and also the business to customer side. And um, and my team did a phenomenal job in getting that done. And so I really appreciate all the work that was put into this. And it's a huge relief that it is now fully operational and going at this point in time. Right. All right. We'll be back after this break. You can join us, though. We're at 1-800-99-NATIVE. The Indian Arts and Crafts Act protects authentic American Indian and Alaska Native artists and craftspeople and their art and craftwork. Under the act, it is illegal to market art or craftwork misrepresented as American Indian, Indian, Native American, or Alaska Native made, or as the product of a particular Indian tribe. Reporting potential act violations can be done at doi.gov IACB or at 1-888-ART-FAKE. Support provided by Indian Arts and Crafts Board. Thank you for tuning in. This is The Menu on Native America Calling, our special feature on Indigenous food and food sovereignty. I'm Andy Murphy. Are you getting ready to garden this year? Are you getting your native seeds in order? Uh, give us a call. We are at 1-800-996-2848. That's also 1-800-99-NATIVE. Uh, before we move on to uh, farming and gardening, I'd like to uh, go back to Nick Taylor, the CEO of Navajo Nation Shopping Centers Incorporated. Um, so, Nick, uh, what, what should perspective Navajo restaurant uh, business owners know before starting the process uh, for a brick and mortar uh, location. Hello, and yeah, to answer your question, it would be really beneficial for any startup or business owner looking to expand or establish a new restaurant would be to really understand the market and to have a solid business plan in place and to actually conduct the due diligence in crafting, say, your financial statements, uh, primarily understanding your income statement and especially your revenue sources and also your expenses, both operating and non-operating expenses, because those expenses will um, help guide actually what you would need to meet in terms of your benchmark and your hurdle goals for maintaining your business in the long term. So that would be my recommendation. And then the second would be just to begin networking and really reaching out to partners and potential collaborators that could assist you in getting some capital um, within the Native America. So those would be my top two for now. 
Awesome. All right. And are there, um, you know, sometimes we hear about some of these uh, uh, native uh, business incubators or, or uh, resource hubs that folks can uh, take a, take advantage of. Um, are there any you'd like to name, especially that um, uh, for native uh, food business owners? See, well, there are a few within the Navajo Nation that operate. There's the um, Change Labs, who does have an incubator program. And then within the Flagstaff, Arizona area, there's Grand Canyon Trust, which does operate a Native American um, business incubator program uh, network. And then on the New Mexico side, I believe there's, within Gallup, New Mexico, there's a, a small business development center at UNM Gallup that's um, headed and directed by Cynthia Jarvison. So uh, Cynthia actually did work with Victoria Largo in helping her get her some of her uh, financials started and helped guided her along the way. So those are some of the folks that I know of. All right. Cool. Thank you. Uh, let's go over to the phone lines. We have Alicia listening on KUNM. Hey, Alicia. Hi, good morning. Hello. So um, I was just listening to the show today and you with Miss Largo a couple of weeks ago, and it just reminded me that she worked very, very hard to continue her business, um, whether it was in her house, in her oven, or in her trailer, her food trailer. But now she has a, a restaurant, and I'm just, I'm just really, really proud of her, um, given knowing that there are a lot of obstacles that business owners face on tribal nations, but also in, in rural checkerboard area of Crown Point. It was a lot of work for her to move into a full-fledged uh, business with the actual location within the Navajo Shopping Center. So um, I did. I was able to attend the grand opening and through all the snow that happened that day, um, the event was really good, and the pizza was just as I remembered it. So as a kid growing up, wanting her pizza and having it for a couple of nights as a treat, um, it still tastes just as delicious. So I'm so proud of Victoria, and I just wanted to, to say that. So thank you. All right. Thank you for that comment, Alicia. Alicia is actually my sister, and she's the one who brought back that audio um, of Victoria Largo there. Um, if you want to learn more about uh, Victoria's business there, Victoria's Pizza and Crown Point, um, I have a food podcast called Toasted Sister Podcast, and there's going to be a whole episode on uh, Victoria uh, recorded by my sister who lives there in Crown Point. Uh, a couple of uh, a couple of blocks away from Victoria's Pizza, but I'd like to say uh, thank you so much to Nick for joining us today uh, to help us uh, talk about Victoria's Pizza there and the significance of um, you know a business owner moving into an actual physical space there uh, on the Navajo Nation. Um, I'd like to go over to our last guest today. We have uh, Rowan White in San. Juan, California, joining us. She's a seed keeper, farmer, and founder of Sierra Seeds. She's also the recipient of a James Beard Foundation Leadership Award. Rowan, it's Aquasasni Mohawk. Welcome to the menu, Rowan. 
Hey, Andy. How are you? Good doing, to be here. Yeah, doing pretty good. Thank you so much for joining. Uh, so first of all, congratulations on the James Beard Foundation Leadership Award. Uh, what, is this, what does this mean to you? Wow. Well, it, it really uh, caught me um, quite surprised to to be the recipient. I mean, I have there's been so many esteemed colleagues and people who I look up to who've received this award. And, you know, for me, it feels like I just feel really honored to be one of so many people in a long lineage and legacy who have kept seeds and stories and our passion for dignified resurgence within our communities alive. So I feel like I'm accepting this honor on behalf of my home community and my ancestors and my living relatives and all of my teachers who are plant and human (laughs) who've helped me to um, sort of see my vision forward for uh, keeping good seeds alive and inspiring others to do so. So. Yeah. Tell us a little bit more about uh, Sierra Seeds. What, What is it all about? Yeah, so Sierra Seeds is an educational farm. We have 10 acres here in North San Juan. It's a family farm. And really this was started um, because, you know, at, 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 at a young age, I was entrusted with uh, many sacred bundles of seeds from my home community of Okwesosne, many seed elders and people in my community who saw my interest and passion for not only keeping our ancestral seeds alive, but also keeping the cultural memory and stories alive with them. And at that point in time, there was not a whole lot of young people, young women like myself who were um, interested. I think there were many people, but there was a bit of a generation gap. And so um, I was entrusted with all of these bundles of seed. And so Sierra Seeds really sprouted as an entity and organization from my love and passion for seeds and caring for them. So it's a living seed bank farm here. We grow and and tend and steward to hundreds of different varieties of indigenous seeds from both my home community and um, intertribal communities across North America and Turtle Island. And really it grew into uh, an an entity and organization that understood that there was a growing need in Indian country to um, mentor and help grow the next generation of seed stewards. You know, so I, I sort of grew this mentorship program here on the farm into something that I wished I'd had when I was a 17-year-old girl, right? Mm -hmm. And so we've um, developed both in-person and on virtual and online mentorship opportunities. And and then out of that, out of my work here at Sierra Seeds, um, was inspired to work alongside many other Indigenous seed keepers to found the Indigenous Seed Keepers Network, which is um, now housed in, under the organization Native American Food Sovereignty Alliance. So it really, this farm and this land has really burst a lot of, you know, important stepping stones along my path to be a good um, mentor and teacher and seed steward and also just a good future ancestor. Right. Yeah. Uh, so over these years that you've been working with uh, indigenous seeds and ancestral seeds, um, what what have you seen uh, or, get, or I guess what have you noticed about uh, 
the growth, <laughs> the growth of um, these seeds in native communities? Is it do you see it like making a, a comeback, becoming more uh, established in native communities? Like, what do you, what have you seen over these years? such a joy to witness, honestly, you know, myself as a 17 or 18 year old young woman who, you know, I'm a descendant of boarding school survivors, farmers who were taken from their lands and livelihood and, and went through, you know, absolute unspeakable acts of, of violence. And that was sort of severed in my family. So um, returning to seeds and returning to land as a way to heal some of that intergenerational trauma and then bringing that bringing my passion for those seeds into other communities to talk and teach. Um, what I've seen in the last 25 years that I've been on this path is such an uplifting um, growth or, or resurgence of uh, Indigenous people's commitment, you know, to um, seeds and the importance of seeds that they hold in many of our cultures and cosmologies and stories and cultural teachings. And so, it's just been really, really uplifting to not only see elders who've been keeping these seed bundles alive, you know, against all odds, but then having this younger generation grow up and say, we understand why these seeds are so important. We understand the role that they play in our communities and cultures and that they're doubling down and making a commitment. So I've seen a huge resurgence of that in the last, really just the last 10, 15 years, but it's really... Um, Seed work is intergenerational work, right? Like these mm -hmm. seeds get passed down from generation to generation. And so it's so essential that we have that connection and that lineage from outer to, to young folk. And so what I, I'm heartened by is that we're finding new and inspiring ways to um, include young, the younger generations in this work and to uplift them and their leadership um, to continue to take care and, and mentor that next generation of seed stewards. Right, right. Um, uh, seed matriation, uh, that, that's, um, uh, you know, something I, I learned from you a couple of years ago. Uh, I attended a, a summit, and you were there as well in Taos, New Mexico, and I uh, saw, um, uh, you know, uh, you, you came with a bag of seeds and a squash, and you brought it back to Taos, New Mexico, to the Taos Pueblo there, and um, uh, I think the story was, you know, that the Pueblos, they hadn't seen that seed or that squash in a very long time, but uh, you, you know, came across it and grew it and, and came back with the bag of seeds, you know, seed rematriation there. Uh, where do where do some of these seeds come from, and, and what kind of, uh, you know, maybe stories, um, you know, of these seeds, that, you know, sometimes have a problematic past uh, connected to them. Can you expand a little bit more on that? Where, where some of these seeds come from and where you find them? Absolutely. So I think in some ways the way that many of us um, Native um, tribal members are reconnecting to land and tradition, um, the seeds are also reconnecting and, and coming home in a way. And so, you know, through a wide, you know, breadth of different um you know, examples, seeds travel, right? Like seeds get traded and, and shared, but also seeds get taken without consent during times of, you know, colonial, um, you know, um, displacement. And so indigenous seeds from, you know, from decades, perhaps even centuries ago, um, up until, you know, more recently, have migrated out of indigenous communities and have ended up in places like 
universities and museums and seed banks. And again, oftentimes not with the consent of the original indigenous stewards. And so, you know, whether it was for research or ethnography or anthropology um, or even um, archaeology like digs and things, these seeds have ended up in, in these non-native institutions. Um, and, you know, we began to look for some of those seeds outside of our tribal communities because some communities, unfortunately, because of the cultural upheaval and the displacement from uh, colonialism, um, had lost touch and connection with important seeds, culturally significant seeds. And so we were trying to find places where perhaps those seeds had ended up in that time of cultural upheaval. And again, sometimes it ended up in, in these museums and seed banks. So we partnered um, Indigenous Sea Keepers Network and Native American Food Sovereignty Alliance. We partnered with several institutions to begin conversations and to begin to look into those archives and those databases and those seed banks of seed and to try and identify seeds that had tribal origins and um, begin to reunite them with those tribal communities. So that particular squash that you were talking about, uh, Andy, that returned home to the Taos Pueblo, we were able to gift the squash and seeds to the Red Willow Farm and to Henrietta Gomez there at Taos Pueblo. Those had come through a connection that we built with Seed Savers Exchange, which is the largest public access seed bank in the, on the continent. And they have quite a number of indigenous seed varieties that through a number of different circumstances have ended up in their seed bank. And so we, I had seen that that squash was in their collection um, and I knew folks um, at uh, Red Willow like Tiana Swazo and um, uh, Cheryl and, and other folks. And so we, um, yeah, we basically, um, you know, grew the seeds out that season and were able to rematriate those seeds back into the hands of Taos Pueblo farmers and um, that the, the seeds had been away for decades and, and sprouted and grew and they're still continuing to grow those squashes there on the Pueblo. So um, it's stories like that that keep us excited and, and keep us wanting to reunite those seeds because those seeds are our living relatives and we have a commitment to making sure that they're home and being cared for and not just in some cold, sterile university or uh, research vault that they're back in our day-to-day -day lives. So. Yeah. Yeah. Very awesome work. And congratulations again on that uh, James Beard Foundation Leadership Award. Um, unfortunately, that's the end of the hour. Uh, I, I wanted to ask about uh, gardening tips and, and uh, advice, but uh, maybe that'll be for another show in the future. I'd like to say thank you to our guests today. We just heard from Rowan White, Zach Ducheneau, and Nick Taylor. Also, Victoria Largo. Uh, join us next week for another lineup of conversations about uh, Indigenous issues and topics. I'm Andy Murphy. We'll uh, see you next time. Support by the American Indian College Fund. The American Indian College Fund provides millions of dollars of scholarships to thousands of Native students every year. Tribal citizens of every age and experience are eligible. The deadline for applications is May 31st, and you can find everything you need to apply at collegefund.org. That's collegefund.org, or by phone at 800-766-FUND. Education is the answer. This program is supported by AmeriCorps VISTA. 
You can kickstart your career by joining thousands of AmeriCorps members in the VISTA program serving to alleviate poverty. AmeriCorps members help organizations make change right in their own community. A service opportunity that fits your ambition can be found at AmeriCorps.gov VISTA today. That's A-M-E-R-I-C-O-R-P-S dot G-O-V slash V-I-S-T-A. Native America Calling is produced in the Annenberg National Native Voice Studios in Albuquerque, New Mexico by Kwanak Broadcast Corporation, a native nonprofit media organization. Funding is provided by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting with support from the Public Radio Satellite Service. Music is by Brent Michael Davids. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network.